turn in our Bibles this evening to Revelation chapter 21. I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. One of the things that we'll be looking at in Psalm 36 is actually how it points us to heaven. And I could have picked any place really in Revelation 21 or 22 to show that. But I thought I would focus on the opening scene of heaven as God comes to dwell with his people in chapter 21. Listen to the word of God. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Amen. Let's pray for God's blessing now as we turn to his word together. Lord, we do thank you that we can be blessed by being in your presence. And Lord, as we learn more about what that means and the great blessings that you provide for us, we pray that each one of us here would listen and believe what you have said, to believe what is true and to grow in our faith in you, to prove you as we live our lives. Lord, we can do this only through your work in us, through the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would give us your spirit abundantly now. And we do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening our sermon comes from Psalm 36. That's Psalm 36. Remember, we finished up Ruth last week. We're taking a short break in the Psalms before starting our next sermon series. So this week we'll be in Psalm 36. Let's read the psalm together now. To the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. 
Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. This psalm is one of those amazing passages in the scripture where we start out in the depths of sin, really looking sin square in the face. But we don't stay in the depths. We also soar, really, with God to the heights of his character. And then we see how that plays out in our life as we find ourselves between sin and also between a sovereign, loving, and gracious God. This psalm is an amazing psalm to meditate on, to drive us to worship, And it's a psalm for our life as we often follow with David between those two extremes of sinful men and a loving and gracious God. As we look at this psalm, what we'll see tonight is that our hope is really in the character of God. This is what establishes us and makes us firm. The unchanging character and blessing of the Lord gives us eternal confidence in his protection. And the focus is really on the Lord, that it's his unchanging character, his constant blessings that give us eternal confidence in his protection. We'll see that really in three points. We'll see first the character of the sinner in verses one through four. Second, we'll see the character and blessing of the Lord in verses five through nine. And third, we'll see the confident prayer in verses 10 through 12. So first we see the character of the sinner in verses 1 through 4. David describes the sinful man in the opening verses of the psalm. As we read these words, this is a sobering description. This man has turned away from God. And his whole life now, his thoughts, his words, and his actions are committed to sin. And before we look at the details, it's helpful to know why David takes such a long look at a sinner. Why is he doing this? Well, the first reason is that sinful men threaten godly David. Look at verse 11 in particular. David prays that sinners would not harm him. So in a sense, what David is doing here is he's taking a long look at the enemy to know how serious the threat is truly is. And the psalm shows that the threat is very real. In a sense, David is kind of practicing that well-known phrase, right? Know your enemy. That's what David is doing. But he isn't trying to understand his enemy so that he can defeat him. No, David is actually taking a long look at his enemy and then turning and taking a longer look at the Lord. Because he is building his confidence 
in God. What he's doing by looking at the sinner and then looking at God is setting up a glorious contrast, really a magnificent contrast through the entire psalm. The sinner, even in the depth of his sin, even in a life dedicated to sin, cannot ever compare to the Lord. And that really is the second reason why David describes the sinner in so many details, to remind himself of the greatness of God. The reality of sin and sinners who hate God and his people could be very discouraging. This could be a really sad psalm if David just stayed in verses 1 through 4. But David there looks sin full in the face, and he's able to do that with confidence because he also then meditates on the greatness of God. So that's why David is doing this, really. Set up that contrast. But let's look together at David's description in verses 1 through 4. What we see here in these verses is kind of an Old Testament counterpart to what Paul says in the book of Romans. As Paul describes sin and sinners. And that famous passage in Romans 3, as Paul says, every man is a sinner, he actually quotes directly from this psalm. He quotes from verse 1, there is no fear of God before his eyes. The sinner does not fear God. He does not honor him as God. And we know from scripture, right, that the fear of God is meant to control all that we do. Look at the book of Proverbs, right? It's clear that the the fear of the Lord is the foundation of a godly life. And the fear of the Lord is not some sort of unhealthy fear like being terrified, scared of making a mistake. The fear of the Lord means a deep honor and respect for God. But the sinner has rejected that fear. He has rejected God's righteous rule in his life. And we see the results of the sinner's rejection of God in the rest of these verses. We see pride in verse 2. A pride, actually, that's based in his own sinfulness. There's also a, a false security described here because he no longer sees God as a powerful, all-knowing judge. He is secure in his own sin. In verse 3, David moves on to show a summary of his Words and actions. The sinner, his mouth is characterized by trouble and deceit. That means he's a liar who seeks to cause trouble with his words. And in fact, his whole life is characterized by rejecting all of God's ways. Instead, actually, he now spends his free time plotting trouble. Think about Psalm 1 and the comparison here, the righteous man in Psalm 1 spends all of his time meditating on the word and the works of God. The sinner uses that time to plan further and deeper sins. The end of verse 4 is an indictment of his whole way of life. He is committed, 100% committed to a life of evil. Does this description in verses 1 through 4, does this description sound like a sinner you know? I ask that because we often have trouble applying God's word to the people we know and especially to the people that we love. Now, we may have a good 
theoretical knowledge of total depravity. That's really what we see here, right? Total depravity, the doctrine that man is evil on all of his nature. He is sinful throughout his entire nature. But so often that's just a theoretical knowledge because then we meet someone and they seem like such a nice person and our theology gets warped by our experience. And throughout the Bible, God gives us time and time again, he gives us the true picture of the world and of ourselves. You know, what we see here in these opening verses in Psalm 36 applies to everyone. This is not some special class of sinner. This applies to to everyone. We do know from reading Romans 1, right, that everyone is not as sinful as they could be, and everyone and God sometimes hands over people to greater and greater sin. But the reality that we see in Psalm 36 and throughout Scripture, the reality of our sin, the extent of our sin, and the depth of our sin is sobering. It should stop us in our tracks. And I say our sin, I say that very purposefully. Because we were just like verses 1 through 4. We were dead in our trespasses and sins as well. This description was us. Don't forget that. Don't forget where we were, even when we encounter hardened sinners. We know from our own lives that God's grace brings the dead to life. We really have a great God who does not just leave people in verses 1 through 4, but actually breaks through that sin, changes our hearts, and brings us to himself. And that's where David goes. He turns from meditating on the wicked, now to meditate on the greatness of God, especially in his love for his people. That's really what we see secondly then is the character and blessing of the Lord in verses 5 through 9. As David now turns this corner and begins this new section, he begins by painting a picture of the greatness, the immensity of God's character. God's steadfast love, his faithfulness, his righteousness, his judgments are like the tallest, biggest, deepest things in all of creation. As you read these verses, you're supposed to use your imagination. Think of the thunderclouds towering overhead on a summer afternoon. Think of those pictures you've seen of the great wall of the Himalayas or the deep, dark, silent depths of the ocean. As we think about those things, we see really that we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the immensity of creation. I don't know about you, I'm, I like mountains more than anything else. And even recently, I've just been reading more and more books about men tackling some of the greatest mountains in the world, Everest, K2. Their sheer size of the mountains just blows your mind to see how small one man is compared to something like Mount Everest. What is man really compared to any of these things that David describes. And that's really exactly the point of what David is saying here. Because God himself is even so much greater than any of these things that he has created. And if God is so much beyond the greatest mountain, beyond the highest cloud, 
What is man compared to God? What is a sinful man compared to God? What is the entire mass of sinful man compared to God? Nothing. Really nothing compared to God. Certainly not a threat to God. David then focuses on the greatness of God. Notice that he focuses especially on God's love for his people. He mentions his steadfast love and his faithfulness. His steadfast love is at the heart of God's covenant with his people. It's it's his love that grabs a hold of us and it will never, ever let us go. And it's his faithfulness, his faithfulness to all the great promises that he has made to us. You can see already in verses 5 to 6 that it's not the sinner in view anymore. It is God especially in relation to us, his people. His character, the greatness of his character is focused in on the people he has chosen and loved. We see that at the end of verse 6 even because we see that his, his love and care extends to us as people and actually to all the things he has made, man and beast, you save, O Lord. So it's a God's greatness then. God's greatness is on full display in verses 6. But even more amazing is really verses 7 to 9. Because then David takes that greatness of God and he brings it down to us. Because he shows us the truth that our great God is also a personal, loving, protecting gracious God. Look at verse 7. David says that God's steadfast love is so precious to us because we can take refuge in God, like like a baby bird seeking protection and care under the wings of its mother. That is a great tenderness. There's great tenderness to this image. Now, we've seen that that very same image recently in the book of Ruth. When Boaz blesses Ruth for turning to God, he describes the protection of God in the same way. The protection, but also the care that God shows Ruth by meeting her every need. And we see the same image of a, a mother bird protecting her young in the New Testament as well. Think of the tenderness of Jesus. As he speaks to Jerusalem in Matthew 23, he says he wished so many times that he would have been able to gather them to himself, but they would not. You know, if Jesus showed this kind of love to a people that wanted to kill him, how much more love do we experience from our Heavenly Father? We have that love and care and protection for us every moment of our lives. And that care is not some sort of short shrift care. This is abundant care. Look at verse 8. David shows us a picture of overwhelming abundance coming from God. He says, Your people feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. This is a care That is a feast with food that never runs out. This is a care that is water from a river that never, ever runs dry. David here is capturing all of God's blessings to us. 
both God's material blessings and his spiritual blessings, his blessings on our life now and his blessings for the life to come. These are abundant blessings, never-ending blessings, actually increasing blessings. Have you seen that in your life? Can you testify to the abundant blessings of the Lord? I think each one of us can. We can look at those blessings, for instance, in Ephesians 1. We can see the whole scope of our salvation. We can see that being played out in our own lives. But even day by day, we can see the abundant blessing of a God who cares for us. He cares for us in our weakness. He cares for us in our sin. He cares for us in our struggles. And he meets our needs and goes way beyond what we even think we might need in our daily life. How do we get these blessings? How do we get these blessings from the Lord? Well, David shows us these blessings come from being in the very presence of the Lord because it's food from your house. It's the river of your delights. And outside of Christ, there are blessings from God. We want to we say that, but those blessings are minimal. They're minuscule, right? God does take care of sinners. He sends rain on the evil, and he even prevents them from greater evil. That is a kind of blessing from God. But that, that kind of blessing, that kind of care, that, that is a diet of bread and water compared to the richness of the blessings of daily deep communion with our God. Do you see the wealth of blessings that you have in Christ? I mentioned Ephesians 1. Go read Ephesians 1 again. Or Romans 9 through 11. Or look at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and the Father's constant care, constant personal care for each one of us in all our circumstances. Are you blown away by the depths of God's blessing for you in all areas of of your life. Think about how Paul ends that section in Romans 11. He cannot help but be amazed by God's plan and his love for us. That should be our response too as we see a psalm like Psalm 36 and we see it being played out in our lives. We should turn to worship. David shows us next in verse 9 why There are such abundant blessings in the presence of God. He says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The way way David is talking here shows that life and light are really the fundamental aspects of our lives, and they are found only in God. True life. Abundant life, everlasting life is found only in God. He is the very source of our life. That's the picture of the fountain, the very source of our life. So many people that we know, they look for meaning in their lives. They're on a a quest, almost a, a lifelong quest to find their purpose. They want a full life. They want a fulfilled life. And that can look like all sorts of things. Maybe it's work or children or relationships Money, success, rest, your bucket list, whatever it looks like, or maybe a combination of all of these things. But if they are outside of Christ, then they are drinking from shallow, muddy puddles of meaning 
instead of drinking from the clear, pure, unending fountain of life. There is no comparison to what we have in God and what those outside of Christ can ever hope for. David says it's not just that we have life. It's also that we have life only, that we have light only in God. It's only in God's light that we see light as well. Light light is a picture of the truth. It's a picture of understanding. You can't get that anywhere else outside of God. Reality does not make sense without God. Nothing makes sense in the world without God because there is no truth and no meaning outside of him. You know, again, people invent their own meaning. From Adam onward, everyone in their sin has tried to twist the world, has tried to twist reality, to give it a spin and a meaning that cuts God out. Now, you can see that in false religions throughout history, and you can see it also in the false philosophies of our day. Truth is relative. It's okay. I can live the way I want to. You have to accept me. Whatever that philosophy is, that's wrong. That is not true. It is only, only as we come to God that we understand him, ourselves, and the world. It is only as God shines that we can see clearly. So as you think about these blessings then from God, it's not just the things that we experience day by day, but even this life and light are the very foundations of our life. These are blessings that come directly and abundantly from God alone. And what, God, what David sees in God actually gives him great confidence. That's what we see third and finally, the confident prayer in verses 10 to 12. Because David, as he meditates on God's character and God's blessing, this leads him to a confident prayer for protection. In verse 10, David prays that God would continue to be that God, to show his steadfast love and righteousness to his people, that his people would continue to be protected and cared for by God. Part of that protection appears in David's prayer in verse 11. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. David clearly has not forgotten the evil man of verses 1 through 4, but now he sees him even more clearly than in the beginning because he sees him in relation to God. Even the most evil man, you can fill in the blank here, even the most evil man is subject to God's control. David prays that God would act to protect him. And David sees why he can rely on God's protection in verse 12. These words in verse 12, you should read them like a prophecy because David vividly sees the future defeat of the wicked. He says, there the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. That word there, David is pointing. He is pointing to the spot where the evil man has been thrust down by God. There, right there, I see the evildoers defeated by God himself. Now, this kind of prayer, this kind of prayer for protection, and this kind of prayer with this kind of confidence can be our prayer as well. We've 
seen even more now in the New Testament, the character of God. We know who he is. We see his character so clearly, especially in the life, death, resurrection, and reign of Christ. He has proven his character time and time again, and he has poured out even greater blessings on us than those experienced by David. We have the greater blessing of the Holy Spirit, for instance, the greater blessing that is greater than what David ever experienced. And we actually have an even greater hope and assurance of God's final victory. Look at Revelation. Look at Revelation and the sure and certain promise of Jesus' judgment on all his and our enemies. Now, we may not have personal enemies like David seems to have to have in this psalm, but our brothers and sisters around the world really do. Think about Christians who are being persecuted for their faith in ways that we can't even imagine. Um, this psalm is for those situations. And we also live in a culture that is slowly turning against Christianity. And we need to learn to rely on God instead of being scared by that kind of situation. Instead of being scared by the news reports or policy changes or even personal attacks, God is greater than all of our enemies. His character is unchanging, his blessings are abundant, and his victory is certain. We have all of this in Psalm 36. We have all of this only through Christ. And I find a psalm like this so encouraging because it points me so clearly to Jesus, to his work and to his blessing. Think a little more deeply about Christ from these verses here. The images in this psalm are so rich and so deep. And actually the rest of the Bible pulls some of these very images to describe our salvation, to describe the work of Christ, and to describe the blessings of God that are waiting for us in heaven. Think especially about the writings of John. John picks up a lot of these images here. Jesus, for instance, is described in John 1 in similar ways, right? In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Does that sound like Psalm 36? Yes. The abundant life and light that comes from God. Or look at Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4. What does he tell her? He says he gives living water that leads to eternal life. Or listen again to Jesus' words in John 7 as he describes the gift of the Spirit. He says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Psalm 36 again. And in the Gospel of John, we see all these things come together because we see them come together in Jesus. We see just how personal God really is because Jesus, the Son of God, the fountain of life, the light of the world, actually came into a dark and dead world. To do what? To give eternal life, to give true knowledge to give the Holy Spirit, God himself, to his people. But the blessings, the blessings for God's people, for you and me, they're even greater than this. Look again at the writings of John. Look at the book of Revelation. John describes heaven in very similar ways. 
Because when we are finally fully in the presence of the Lord, what is it going to be like? John says it's like a feast, it's like a spring, and it's like a river. There is the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19. There is the promise that we read about from Revelation 21, that to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the final picture of heaven in in Revelation 22 is the river of the water of life that flows from its source. Where? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. And do you know what the other picture was? There is no sun in heaven. There is no light because the light is God himself. This psalm is pushing us forward. This psalm is pushing us to see Christ, to see his work, and see the blessings of heaven that he has secured at the cost of his own life, that he has secured for each one of us who are his. Do you see those blessings? Do you rejoice in the character, the unchanging character and abundant blessings of our God? We all need to grow in this. This is one of the recurring themes in my Christian life. I'm sure it's in yours as well. We lose sight of who God is. We lose sight of what we have in God. We lose sight of heaven that is waiting for us really just around the corner in the grand scheme of things. Look back to Psalm 36. Look back to the goodness of God poured out for you in your life. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on heaven. Look forward to the greater and greater and greater eternal, unchanging, abundant blessings that he has secured for us and will be ours soon. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we so often do not see how good you truly are to us. We live our lives day by day, and we so quickly forget your love for us, your faithfulness to your promises, your righteousness, your judgments, your provision, your care, your protection, your blessing, your feeding. Lord, show us again that you are the loving shepherd. Our cup overflows when we are in your presence. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. We cannot find it anywhere else apart from you. We thank you for the gift of eternal life that is even ours now, that is transforming us. And Lord, we look forward to a day when we will be with you. We pray especially, Lord, in the week to come, as we do continue on in the day-by-day life, the Christian life that you've called us to. Help us not to lose heart. Help us not to look down, but to look up, to see you, to see your blessings, to see your love and care for us, and to see the end goal of being with you forever. We thank you, and we pray that you would do this work through your Holy Spirit, who is your gift to us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.